When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Let's get to our week in review. Last Sunday, Paula and I covered the Nazi art theft. A painting was seized from Oberlin College because it had been stolen by the Nazis from a victim in a Jewish concentration camp. Then, on Wednesday's episode with Ohio Mysteries Backroads, Dan and Mike brought us the fantastic story about Wes Craven the guy who brought us one of the most famous villains in horror genre, Freddy Krueger and the ties to Kirkland, Ohio. If you have not heard of any of those episodes, please head back and check those out. Also remember the best way to help support Ohio Mysteries and Ohio Mysteries Backroads is to tell a friend and a family member how to listen to our show. Leave a rating and send any feedback to feedback at ohiomysteries.com. That is also the email to send if you have any show ideas. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio Mysteries. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Can an object be haunted or maybe cursed? I only ask because sitting at the Morgan County Historical Society in Southeast Ohio is a gun that figures in a couple of shocking deaths. The murder of the town constable in 1905 by a local man with no history of violence. Then, four years later, the suicide of the county prosecutor who found the gun in a courthouse safe and used it to take his own life after repeatedly sketching the gun on paper that was found on his desk. We'll throw in one other creepy factor to this story, not necessarily related to the gun, but an unsettling twist nonetheless. Because when the prosecutor killed himself, he turned out to be the first in a string of deaths that kept delaying the sensational trial of a murdered baby. Well, I don't know about you, but I already have goosebumps. So let's just get started. We are traveling tonight to McConnellsville, along the Muskingum River. It's a village 
and it's the county seat of Morgan County. Now, when the county seat is a mere village, it should give you an idea of how rural and close-knit those communities would be. When our story takes place, there were only 16,000 people in the entire county, about 1,600 of them living in McConnellsville. In other words, you can bet everybody knew who Horace Greeley Porter was. Born and bred in McConnellsville, Horace Porter had spent his entire adult life serving and protecting, first in the military, then 12 years as the town marshal. Horace was 52 years old, married to Minnie May, and the father of three daughters and a son. He was lean, with dark hair, and a full horseshoe mustache that tickled down the sides of his chin. Well, everybody in town also knew Wood Stewart. Woody was 35 years old and a very troubled soul. He came from a good family, descended from some of Morgan County's first pioneers. He had six brothers, one of whom was the county clerk, six sisters, and a mom, most of them still living in town. Woody worked as a cigar maker. The newspaper called it a stogie roller. But he was best known to all because of his eccentricity. Back then, people described him as being of unsound mind. Modern accounts of the story make the leap and call him a paranoid schizophrenic. Whatever his actual condition was, it manifested itself in the way he would make a daily habit of walking around town and stopping on certain street corners for a spell. He did nothing untoward, didn't even speak to anyone. He'd just pause for a bit, maybe mumbling, then move on to the next stop in this daily circuit of his. Woody's brother, Gage Stewart, who lived about 30 miles away in Zanesville, would later explain that Woody had what he called a peculiar operation a decade earlier and that he hadn't been right in his mind ever since. The family had often discussed whether to institutionalize him, but never followed through. He wasn't hurting himself or anyone else, so instead they decided to just keep an eye on him. Of course, as the years went by, their efforts to monitor him began to wane. Marshal Horace Porter also had a habit of walking around town, but that, of course, was his job, and his beat often took him right past Woody. Sometimes people would tell Horace how uncomfortable they were with Woody's loitering, sometimes saying unkind things directly to Woody, sometimes even threatening Woody, saying Marshal Porter would be along to move him soon enough. And on occasion, that's exactly what would happen. The Marshal would show up, someone would complain, and Horace would tell Woody, time to move along. Still, in spite of this dance between the Marshal and Woody, people thought they got along just fine. Until they didn't. (music) 
on September the 7th, 1905, right around 10 in the morning, Marshall Porter was making his daily rounds on foot when he made a turn down an alley in front of the McKay and Whitaker livery barn. It's possible he never even saw Woody, who had followed him into the alley. Woody walked up from behind and ambushed him, shooting him in the head with a thirty-two caliber revolver. The marshal fell to the sidewalk, likely already dead. But Woody took aim again and fired two more bullets into his face and a fourth bullet into his body. This act was witnessed by Charles Whitaker, junior partner in the livery. He ran to Woody, wrenched the smoking gun from his hand, and held him there until authorities arrived to take Woody to jail. Woody would not answer any questions about what he had done, not a syllable, according to media reports. He simply paced back and forth in his cell, sometimes giving the impression he didn't even know a crime had been committed. To this day, we have no idea what exactly set him off. But given his well-known condition, nobody expected him to be found guilty of murder. And he wasn't. Instead, he was quickly ruled to be insane and committed to the Ridges Lunatic Asylum in Athens. Marshall Porter, meanwhile, was buried at McConnellsville Cemetery. The origin of that 32 caliber handgun that Woody used was never discovered. Nobody knew where it came from, and Woody wasn't speaking to anyone. And so the revolver was locked in a safe inside the Morgan County Courthouse, and that's where it remained for the next four years, until it found itself in the hands of a new victim. In January of 1909, the newly elected Morgan County prosecutor moved into his office in the courthouse. Frank Parsons was a local boy, raised in the western part of the county, and a longtime teacher and school superintendent. During his career as an educator, he used his spare moments to study law, and in 1906, a year after Marshall Porter had been murdered, he passed the bar and stopped teaching. He joined a friend, T.E. McElhaney, and they hung out their shingle in McConnellsville. But it was a short-lived partnership because just a year later, Parsons ran for and won election to the office of county prosecutor. He and McElhaney dissolved their joint practice and Frank embarked on his new job. Frank was 33 years old and single and lived with his 70-year-old widowed mother. But those who knew him questioned whether he had taken on too much. Frank had been in poor health for years, and that quickly became evident. While prosecuting one of his first cases, he suffered a spell of heart trouble in the courtroom and had to take a few weeks off to recover. Friends encouraged him to resign, saying he needed to ease the stress on himself. But he wouldn't listen, and soon he found himself facing a daunting case. 
Remember, he'd only been an attorney for two years, prosecutor for just a few months, and now it was all up to him to seek justice in the case of a murdered infant. It happened in a little Morgan County crossroads known as Reinersville on September the 15th, 1909. A man named John Smith had just moved onto a new property he purchased, and within a couple of days noticed his chickens kept scratching at the same spot of dirt. He moved in close for a look and found they had dug up the badly decomposed body of a baby. The coroner determined that the newborn, estimated to weigh about eight pounds, had a gash across his throat and a severed windpipe, as well as a crushed skull. Smith had purchased the property from a family by the surname of Phyllis, and investigators honed in on someone who was living with them, Frances Allen, a 39-year-old widowed mother of five. Some reports described her as their employee, but others said she was actually the niece of the homeowners. Now, the articles I could access didn't explain why they thought her guilty, but Frank Parsons intended to have a grand jury indict her for first-degree murder. It was going to be a very busy grand jury season. Frank had several cases to present to them, this sensational murder and several assaults that had these challenging facts about them. Frank had been working weekends and into the night hours trying to prepare the evidence that he needed to share with the jurors. He was clearly overwhelmed. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. On Sunday, October the 3rd, around 5 p.m., Frank walked from his home to the courthouse. He went to his office and pulled from his drawer the handgun that had killed Marshal Horace Porter. He had taken the gun from the courthouse safe a few weeks earlier. Now he placed the gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. People walking about the square outside the courthouse had seen Frank walk into the empty building and had heard the shot, but nobody thought enough of it to investigate. Still, it wouldn't take long for him to be discovered. Frank 
had arranged to meet with his old partner, Mr. McElhaney, regarding some old business. McElhaney had gone to Frank's home to keep the appointment, and when he learned Frank wasn't there, he followed him to the courthouse. McElhaney walked into Frank's office. It was dark, so McElhaney opened the blinds, and the late afternoon sun illuminated the body of Frank right where it lay on the office floor behind his desk. He was still alive. McElhaney ran for help, and he brought back Dr. Taylor to attend to him. It's worth noting that Frank was well-liked, even popular. As news of the shooting spread, throngs of people walked to the courthouse and filled the town square, waiting for final word of his fate. But Frank only held on for an hour before succumbing to a self-inflicted wound, and it was reported there was audible grief rippling through the crowd when they learned the young man hadn't survived. After Frank's body was removed, investigators found a couple of curious things in his office. The first was a letter in his safe, addressed to his brother but yet unmailed. His brother, Chester Parsons, was a farmer who lived nearby in the hamlet of Elliot. In the letter, written on both sides of a single sheet, Frank suggested he had been thinking of taking his own life. He said his health was bad, very bad, worse than anyone had known. Investigators also found this. On his desk were three sketches of the very revolver that Frank had used to kill himself, presumably drawn while he sat at his desk, whipping up the nerve to act. As I said in my opening remark, Frank's suicide turned out to be just the first in a series of strange deaths that kept stalling the murder trial of Francis Allen. The grand jury briefly postponed after Frank's death, was seated on October the 12th, and they did indict her for first-degree murder. An acting prosecutor was brought on board to get himself up to speed, but the trial had to be delayed yet again because John Smith, that was the man who had found the baby's grave on his property, suffered a heart attack and died. Then there was another delay when Francis Allen's own defense attorney died. An article later said, quote, a number of witnesses in the case died, end quote. So there may have been more, though I couldn't identify who. And then this final delay. Dr. Lucius Culver, a Civil War surgeon who was to serve as an expert witness in the case, had a stroke while he was on the stand. No longer able to speak, he couldn't give testimony. Dr. Culver never recovered. He lingered until 1911 and then died. Francis Allen's trial was finally conducted a year later in October of 2010. That was one year to the month of Frank Parsons' suicide. I'm sure she thought it was worth the wait because her one-week trial ended with a finding of not guilty and the homicide of that unknown baby was never solved.
You don't need any ghosts to make this entire story more unsettling than it already is, but hey, ghosts we have. Frank Parsons was buried in Mountville Cemetery, but others think he never strayed far from where he killed himself. I found a 2002 story in the Morgan County Daily Times about one such encounter. The very room where the suicide occurred had been turned into a genealogy room, and a woman named Barb Nichols said she and her daughter were using the resources there in search of an old family will, when suddenly the door swung shut. They opened it, and it swung shut again. And then again, they finally had to find something to keep it propped open. The pair mentioned this troublesome door to someone after finishing their work, only to be asked, well, haven't you heard of the ghost in the courthouse? They had not. Turns out, many people had claimed to hear footsteps as well as doors opening and closing, and they all attributed it to Frank Parsons. As for the ghost of Town Marshal Horace Porter, some attribute strange activity at the Twin City Opera House to him. That old theater sits on West Main Street, across the street from the courthouse. It's been around since 1892, spending its first 40 years hosting live shows and then transitioning into movies. The East Alley door of the Opera House is right around where Porter was shot to death by Woody Stewart. People have long reported seeing a large shadow of a man near that same door, and they believe Porter is still on the beat patrolling the alley. That Opera House, by the way, is a popular destination for ghost hunters. The folks who run the website TwinCityOperaHouse.com said they've done more than 200 investigations in the building. I know I'm getting a little off subject here, but hey, it's Halloween. There's always room for one more ghost. These ghost hunters say over the years, they have used EVPs, those are audio voices of ghosts, to piece together a paranormal love story with a tragic end. This is what they say they've learned. A woman named Victoria used to perform at the Opera House. She came from West Virginia and on one trip to McConnellsville started a romance with an unhappily married stagehand named Robert Lowry. From that union, a little girl named Elizabeth was born. Elizabeth grew up traveling with her single mom, and when they were in McConnellsville, she often watched her mom's performances while hanging out with the man she knew to be her dad, Robert, on the catwalk. One weekend, when Elizabeth was 10 years old, she and her mom, Victoria, came to McConnellsville for a show. Victoria had to leave Elizabeth back at the Kennebec Hotel. That was just across the street from the opera house. Because the girl was sick, she was running a high fever. So Victoria went did her performance, came back to the hotel after the show, and found Elizabeth's lifeless body in bed. I have no idea if anyone has tried to document these people, but ghost hunters claim to have captured EVP from Victoria, saying things like, I'm so sorry, and I didn't mean to. 
They believe the spirit of Victoria is still trying to apologize to her daughter for leaving her alone to die. The ghost hunters said they have tried to reassure Victoria that it wasn't her fault. And once they said they caught Victoria saying, I'm okay now, really. They say they've also picked up a lot of activity from little Elizabeth's dad, Robert. They call him Red Wine Robert because they said once they heard him saying, I've got red wine. The ghost hunters seem to really enjoy their interactions with the colorful Robert. They say he's a bit of a Casanova, flirting with the women that come to visit him, and once revealing that he has an affinity for red-headed women with large busts. He said Victoria met that physical description, but his wife did not. Now, investigations into McConnellsville's Twin City Opera House have been on the Travel Channel, A&E, and the Sci-Fi Channel. You can learn a whole lot more about it or even put together a ghost hunting team of your own by visiting TwinCityOperaHouse.com. Finally, just a final epilogue about Woody Stewart, our homicidal maniac. Woody spent a few years in Athens. Then he was transferred to the brand new Lima State Hospital when it opened in 1915. Then, late in life, was returned back to Athens. And that's where he died in 1953 at the age of 72. Now, the Ridges in Athens is considered a very haunted place. We did an episode on the history of that hospital, if you care to look it up. I haven't heard of any ghost stories specifically involving Woody, and I'm going to tell you that's a good thing, because I'm guessing Woody was haunted enough in life. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to KillerPodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.